are homeless, oh, you're alone, I will be your home. Whatever's the matter, whatever's been Good morning. Ooh, that was a that was a serious good morning. I'm trying to drink a lot of water this morning. I'm not feeling so flash. I feel like my kidneys are overrun by oil. I, I, I went to the peanut festival yesterday. I feel like a deep-fried Oreo this morning. I just couldn't quit eating all that stuff. I haven't seen it in eight years, and it, it looks so good. And So I might have to see an internal medicine doctor in here afterwards. We'll see. Okay. And it looks like I went to the pub. I've still got my bracelet on. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. Hey, while you're flipping there, I want to give you some background information that might be helpful for you. Um, This morning we begin the third chapter, and Peter starts by saying, this is my second letter to you 
And so he's, he's talking there about 1 Peter and 2 Peter, and he tells them the reason that he's written these letters is he wants to give them clarity. He wants them to have a, a clear understanding of the gospel, of the coming of Jesus Christ, as these false teachers are there, and they're very much muddying the waters. Now, his first few verses that we won't focus so much on this morning, he gives a brief summation of what he's already said. So, he says, again, remember, you know, remember the prophets and what they've said in the Old Testament. Remember the words of Jesus that were spoken to you through the apostles. And know that there will be false teachers and false prophets in the church. So again, it's the same stuff that he said. And know that their lives, look at their lives, they're living in a sensual fashion. So he's kind of given a summation there in those first couple of verses of everything he said in chapter 1 and chapter 2. But then he turns. And for the first time, he begins to actually address some of the false teaching head on. And what we see is they were teaching that Christ is not coming again and that God is not a God that intervenes in the world. And they're pointing to creation history and all the way back and saying, look, God is not a God that intervenes. This Jesus is not coming again. And Peter's simple reply is to point them to the Scriptures and then to point them forward. So to point them back and to point them forward and the truth of the fact that God is a God that intervenes, and His greatest intervention has been in the person and the work of Jesus Christ in the world and in your life, if you know Him. So this is where we are this morning, so let's just read Second Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of remember, a reminder, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Let's pray for our time. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are an intervener. You are not the God of the deist. You're not the God of Benjamin Franklin, and you're not the God of Jefferson, Lord. You're a God that intervenes in the world, and we thank you in a very personal way you intervene, by taking on flesh, Lord, becoming one who dwells as a man, and remaining 
Lord, like that, our Savior for all eternity, God. And so we praise you, Lord, that you didn't leave your creation to rot in sin and, pl- and face your judgment, but you redeemed it with a jealous heart for your own glory, to show your grace and your mercy, and for us, your people, to know you. And so this morning, I pray that when we leave here, everybody here that knows Jesus personally, Lord, we would leave with a fresh desire to worship and sing your praises as the God who intervenes and has personally intervened in our life and the direction of our life by calling us to yourself, by your spirit. And we pray that and we ask that you continue that powerful work in our midst now. In Jesus' name, amen. The world can be changed. We know it can be changed because it it changed in the fall, the Scripture says. And it will change again in a radical, dramatic fashion when Jesus comes again. But this only happens through God's gracious intervention. And Jesus taught on this extensively. Matthew 24, Matthew 25, and Luke 12. And one of my favorite parables is there in Luke 12... And he says to us, the church, how should you live? Expecting the coming of the master to his house. And he says you should be ready, like the servants who are waiting for their master to come home from a long trip. And they clean the home, they've got everything ready, and they stay up late at night, and they're longing for him to come back. They can't wait for him. They can't wait to be with him. Those are some of the servants. And then there's other servants in the house that Jesus describes there around verse 46, 47 in Luke 12. And they say, look, where is he? He he hasn't come back. He's not coming back. Let's, Let's feast. Let's go in the larder and eat and drink and abuse our power and privileges. And Jesus says, when the master returns, he will punish them for their unfaithfulness. Now, the question then is, why would those servants, those faithful servants, stay up late at night to meet their master at the door and the others not? Well, just before he starts his parable, he gives a verse in verse 34, chapter 12. I want to read it to you. It says this. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see, because he is their treasure, those servants, they love the master, the head of the house, and they can't wait for him to be with them. And so they wait for him. And they love his house in the same way. They love everything that's him, his, because they value him. They value him more than sleep and more than food. They would not eat because he's coming. And they want to eat with him. Their hearts are for him, to serve him, be with him, care for his possession. And my friends, that is prophetically exactly what the early church was struggling with. And Peter is facing here in 2 Peter. See, this parable is exactly what the early church is seeing. So in 2 Peter 3 after he points them to the apostles and the Old Testament prophets for truth about the second coming of Christ, he says this. 
know this, that these scoffers who have always been in the church, they will scoff by saying, where is this coming Jesus? Don't you know that God's not a God that intervenes in our world? Look back at biblical history. It's all there. We all die, just like our fathers did. Well, Jesus says in Luke 12, this is a treasure problem in the early church. If the church is like a household of servants waiting on the master to return, the reason some are eagerly longing for him to come is because their hearts treasure him. And the reason some don't is because their hearts treasure themselves the most. So that which people love, they long to be united to. Isn't it true? I can't wait for my children to come home from school. Right, kids? Because I long to see them again because I love them. The manner in which people wait reveals a lot about how much they treasure and love the Savior. Now, I think the church today waits in two very different ways. And both often have significant problems. You say, Rusty, what do you mean? On the one hand, you have Christians who wait with a newspaper in their hands, with, with a wonderful heart that longs for the Savior to come back, yet they find prophetic fulfillment in every headline of the newspaper. And the Scriptures are not studied to know, worship, and enjoy Christ, but to try to figure out some jigsaw puzzle and mystery of when he might come back. Often the waiting is not preparing the house like the servants to return. So scattering seed and loving God's people, but rather it's a pulling out of the world, right? Not engaging politics and theater and the arts and the sports because Christ is coming again and none of that stuff's important. And so Christians can hide away in their closet with a Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other. But there's another way that the church struggles with end times, and I think we go to the other side, and this is probably more prevalent in our Presbyterian circles. And that is with almost no fault or expectation of Christ returning. The motto here is, is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. So that all the blessings of living in the master's house are really enjoyed, but there's never any thought or expectation that Jesus is coming again and I should be diligently preparing my own heart and my family's heart for that. So we need to ask, do I know that God intervenes in this world and his final intervention is coming when his son will come again and I am to wait as his child in perfect peace. It's part of his house. But at the same time, I am to be diligent in preparing his house for his return. So here's the main idea today. Jesus is God's intervention in his creation. Jesus, from the beginning to the end, is God's intervention into his creation. Now, there's two things we want to see here. First is... The scoffers' questions, 
And second is Peter's response to those questions. Okay, make sense? Well, let's look then at verses 3 and 4. If you'll open your Bibles with me, verse 3 and 4. I'll try to drink some of that grease down my... Down. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, knowing their own sinful desires or following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of this coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And notice what he says, in the last days. What does that mean? Well, usually in the New Testament, it refers to, when they talk about the last days, they generally are talking about in salvation history. After the Messiah has come, he's died, he's risen again, the church is present and going into the world. The kingdom is going. This generally, not every time, but generally is what the New Testament refers to as the last days. We are in the last days and we are expecting the Messiah, the Savior, to come again. But these false teachers didn't believe that. And so as the church is waiting, they're scoffing at that. And notice the two things that they scoff at. Look in your Bibles there with me at verse 4. First, they say, where's the promise of his coming? So you can almost hear them, can't you? It's been 35 years. (laughs) If the Savior is coming, where is he? Don't you know that the church is suffering? Why is he allowing all that suffering? Yeah, we see he fulfilled prophecy, but if he was coming, it would have already happened. So they begin to scoff at the apostles' teaching that Jesus is coming again. But there's a second part. They don't just stop there. Look in your Bibles at verse 4 there. Look what they say. Nothing will change. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So Peter is summarizing their argument. And what they're saying is, God does not intervene. The patriarchs or our fathers of faith, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they died. And in fact, this is how it's been from the beginning. And we choose to believe nature that they all died, just like it's always been. And you're telling us this Jesus is going to come and death is going to stop? No. It's not. You're wrong. So the short of it is the gospel doesn't change that much for them. If it was true that Christ would have, he would have already been here. And therefore, since he's not coming again, there's no judgment and I have nothing to worry about. I can live a sensual life. And Peter's response to them in verse 1 is, I'm writing to give you a clear understanding. Remember what the prophets taught you on one hand. Remember what the apostles have taught you on the other. Now, what is lost when we lose the hope that Christ will finally and fully intervene in our world? What's lost when that's not your expectation? Lots of things. But one of them, one of them is a hope for eternal justice. You see, if Christ is not coming again, then evil wins today 
because evil will never go unpunished. For the believer, part of our longing for the Savior or the master of the house to come back is to bring justice into our unjust world. Let me ask you this. Have you ever been wronged? Have you ever been deeply sinned against? Have you ever been mistreated? Abused? When we are wronged, we have three major options. You can either forgive and know that Christ is coming again. You can get bitter in your own heart and allow it to settle in so that what comes out of you is constant bitterness. Or you can take revenge. And I think what you often see is either bitterness or a combination of both bitterly taking revenge. In Shakespeare's play, The Merchant of Venice, most of you, or many of you might know it, if you remember, the, the main character is a man named Antonio. And Antonio has lost a lot of money. And so he's very much down on his luck, and he's trying to figure out how he can get a loan. Well, there's a Jewish man named Shylock. And Shylock is a very... Uh, astute, stern Jewish man, and Antonio has been his enemy for a long time. Antonio goes to him, and they strike up a deal about the loan, but there's one clause that Shylock puts in there. If you don't pay it back, I get a pound of your flesh. If you don't pay it back, I get a pound of your flesh. Shylock says it like this. He has disgraced me and hindered me half a million times. Laughed at my losses, mocked at my gains, scorned my nation, thwarted my bargains, cooled my friends, heated my enemies. And what's the reason? I'm a Jew. If you prick us, do we not bleed? If you tickle me, do I not laugh? If you poison us, do we not die? And if you wrong us, do we not get revenge? What Shakespeare is saying, Jews do what every human does. They bleed, they laugh, they die. They seek revenge when they are wrong. My friends, the coming of Christ changes how we view justice. In two major ways, he administers and he will administer justice and punishment. And on the second hand, he will administer rewards first. He will bring justice to our world through Christ. Acts 17, verse 31. He is fixed today on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. On this, he has given assurance by raising him from the dead. In our world, justice sometimes takes place, but sometimes it does not. Cruelty or oppression is often what we find. Often the righteous are condemned, the evil go free. And we long and we hope for a day of justice, that the case of the righteous will be taken up and vindicated, and the evil in our world will finally 
be punished and put down. Now, let me just say it like this. The gospel allows freedom to vindicate ourselves when we are accused for something. When you are falsely accused, you can vindicate yourself as a Christian. The gospel allows you to protect your reputation, doesn't it? If you're a believer and someone's saying something false about you. The gospel allows you to assert your rights in a court of law. But the gospel never allows you to seek personal judgment when you're wrong. Or when we see others hurt deeply. And we can do this when we know that the just judge is coming again. And he is good and he will judge all things. Now, before I go on, let me say it like this. I had a girl come sit in my office. And she said, Rusty, when I was seven years old, uh, two boys in the church took me back in the back part of the church and they did the worst things to me. I knew those boys. They were still deacons. One of them was a deacon in not my church, in another church. It took everything in me not to want to go and pummel those boys. What do you do with that? Well, part of what you do with it is you know that Christ is coming again. And unless those boys cast their sin and cast their cares and their heart upon the Lord so that He takes their judgment, they will face His judgment. But there's another part of it. So we long for justice on one hand, but there's also a part of we long for the comfort and we long for the rewards. And that's the second. We long for the coming of Christ, not just for the justice to the evil in the world, but for the honor that he will show to the faithful. This is what Jesus does in Luke 12. Listen, come back to Luke 12 with me. When Christ comes home and the servants are waiting, do you know what he does? He doesn't sit down and say, oh, great, feed me, serve me. Let me just read it to you, what he does. He will dress for service and have them recline at the table and come and serve them. Do you see that when Christ comes again? He will serve his church. We will eat with him. There will be a great feasting with the Savior. And he will minister to those who are suffering. Like this young girl. And part of her honor is the God of all the universe will draw close to her and minister to her and heal her wounds. And her cup of joy will overflow. So we long for Jesus to come to judge the world. And we trust him to do that. And we long for the Savior to come to honor the faithful and draw close and heal the wounded. Now let's go to the second thing. Peter then answers their questions in three different ways. Point two. Point two, look at verse five with me in your Bibles. He gives very specific answers of why God intercedes. Verse five. For they deliberately overtook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. Notice those words. They deliberately forgot. So when they told the story They left out the parts where God intervenes in biblical history. Notice what it says. The earth was formed out of water and by water by the word. 
He's referring to Genesis 1-2. I'll read that. The earth was formed, was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. Spirit was hovering over the face of the water. God formed the world through water and his word. Simply states the truth that in the beginning, the world was a watery chaos, unformed and undeveloped. His point is creation implies intervention. From the beginning, God has been active. He brought life out of a watery chaos. He intervenes. Now, he goes even further. Verse 6, he talks about the flood. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. His second argument for a God that intervenes is the flood. He stays with the theme of water. A cause of sin, God brought a giant flood as a judgment upon man. And he's saying you can't argue that the world is marked by regularity. God is not intervening when he used water in his word to bring order in the beginning and destruction in the days of Moses. Now look what he says, and we'll close with this, verse 7. His final and full intercession. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. That's a mouthful, isn't it? We're going to take that in parts. We're going to talk next week about the new heavens and the new earth and cleansing with fire and what all that means. But we're going to say a few words here about this judgment, about the judgment to come. Peter's argument is we are living in the last days before Christ comes. And our world is being kept by his word. And there will be a judgment of all things. So God intervenes far more than we know. By his word, he keeps the heavens and the earth. They, are, they will be recreated where, when he comes again. So everything in the universe is managed by Christ. Every star, every atom, every fish of the sea. Hebrews 1.3 He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. So what we see here is the works of Jesus Christ. God created the world through him. He upholds everything through him. And he will judge all things through him. Now let's stop right here. I get a lot of pushback when we talk about judgment. And in New Zealand, I would also hear again and again, God is unfair if he judges man. So let's start with this. Maybe that's what you're thinking. By right, what right does God have to judge me? Listen, by right of being the creator, God can govern all things he makes. He governs and upholds all of his creatures, including man. But because we are made in his image, we have a moral compass, which means we are subject to another type of government, his moral government of us. He gives us his laws, which are written on everybody's heart, and he's written them on stone when he gave us the Ten Commandments as well. And by its very nature, 
The law has been given to us, and therefore it dictates that there must be rewards and punishment. This is the final judgment of all things. And one of the ways the Father honors the Son is He commits all judgment into His hand. So, the one who was judged by man and found guilty will be the judge of all things. John 5, 22. The Father judges no one but commits all judgment into his hands. C.S. Lewis says, Jesus is the chapter by which the whole plot turns. Last few words. The total work of Christ is nothing less than to create, govern, redeem his entire creation from the effects of sin through justice, judgment, and fire to come. For the glory of God and the joy of his people, he intervenes. There was a little boy named Tom, and um, he worked tirelessly in his dad's wood shop. And he made this boat. And it was an amazing boat. It was so intricate. Even the little weights would roll up and down. The mass would roll up and down. He worked for probably three years on it. And it was the day that he was going to sail it. He waited for the perfect day. He took it back to the creek in his house, and there was a little pond there, and then it went down into a swift river. He got his kite string, he tied it onto the back of the boat, and he got on the ground, and he pushed it off. And he let out more line, more line, more line. And then it got caught in the current. And the boat, being swift, took off downstream. And Tom was trying to chase it downstream with his line, and his line got broken, it snapped. And there goes this boat. And the little boy just ran full speed after his boat through the bushes, seeing it go farther and farther and farther away. It got dark. He lost his boat. Disheartened, he comes home. He tells his parents. The next day, he's walking home from school, or we'll say a few days later, he's walking home from school. He's got his head down. He looks in the window of a storefront. And you know what he sees? No, no, a top hat that he wanted to buy. No, no, he sees his boat. Right there it is. He runs into the store and he says to the man, that's my boat. My initials are carved right in the side of it. And the man says, well, if you want it, it's my boat now. And it'll cost you $10. Tom dropped everything. Home he went, got his piggy bank, got his sister's piggy bank, got his little brother's piggy bank, emptied him on his bed, filled his pocket, came back, $10 on the table. And he got his boat, and he hugged his boat. And he says this, you are twice mine. I will not give you up again. I made you, I lost you, and now I have redeemed you. I have bought you back, and I will never let you go. Now, my friends, through Jesus, the Father has intervened. Through Christ becoming a man as a substitute, we were all lost in sin, and he has redeemed us back from our guilt. The Father has redeemed us to be his and to live in his house 
until he comes again. He created you, then he bought you back when we fell far from him. And God's intervener will come again. And we look for him and we long for him to come and intervene in our world with justice for the sin and evil and wickedness in our world and for reward and blessing for the faithfulness of his people. Lord, I just praise you. I thank you that you are an intervener. I thank you, God, that when we look back at biblical history, it's not a story of you being a God that's far off. You intervene. You step into our world, our story, Lord. And so we praise you and we can know you in the person of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that our Savior is the creator of all things, the upholder of all things, and the redeemer of all things. And for each believer that's here today, he has personally intervened in our life, called us to himself by name, filled us full of his Holy Spirit, the greatest intervention. And now we long for him to come back, Lord. Lord, let us meditate on these truths this week. Father, and let us have a greater joy in the fact that you are coming again. You will set all things right, Father, and a greater worship this week because of who you are and what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.